Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, the day of Pentecost. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they, meaning the disciples, were all gathered in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious days. Then everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that through your word proclaimed, we may encounter you, the living word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our latest podcast, uh, New Persuasive Words, how's that for a little bit of a plug to start things out? Uh, we talk about the issue of empathy. And what inspired us was an episode of Invisibilia, which is a radio, long-form radio magazine. Uh, you can listen to it uh, as you know, a download as well on, your, on any podcast. And what they do is really kind of an interesting thing. They try to get inside what the invisible forces that kind of shape us. And this issue was on the idea of empathy. And it started out kind of uniquely because there were two different um, takes on this one young man. You know, he was a representative of the incel movement, okay? That is a kind of a group, it's become an internet group of mostly, well, angry young white men for the most part. Uh, incel stands for involuntarily celibate. Uh, which we just used to call before the internet underclassmen. But um, 
one of the things that was kind of strange about this group is it actually has become kind of a, an anti-woman group. And even some members of this loose network of people have committed violent crimes. There was a man in Toronto who drove a van and killed 10 people, and it was partially driven by his anger towards woman, women. And so this person they interviewed, someone who'd come out and was being interviewed and, and kind of put himself out there as a member of this movement. But what was interesting about the story wasn't so much about the movement, about the two radically different takes that the two um, journalists had on this young man. The first take was the more traditional invisibilia take. In other words, they say, we exist to try to help people understand other people. Okay? But the second one was from a younger woman and a younger journalist, and her take on the man was totally different. And it began for them to talk about how this idea of empathy has shifted in our culture. Some of us of an older generation, okay, those of us who came of age maybe in the 60s and 70s and 80s, part of what we were taught without us even necessarily being known, knowing about it was the idea that we should try to put ourselves in other people's shoes. We should have empathy for those who are different from us. We should try to understand. Okay? Some of you maybe even had pen pals during the Cold War with folks from Russia. And part of this came out of a movement of thinking that, you know, if we're going to prevent World War III, we need to understand where other people are coming from. A lot of it was the idea that if, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany was a failure to have empathy for people that were different from them. But studies are showing that beginning, you know, around in, in the 1990s, there was a shift among students. And a person who's done research on it, students who are polled now are 40% less empathetic than those of their parents. And part of what they say that is behind that is this growing sense of tribalism. Matter of fact, there's a book written, they interviewed this guy, he's a, uh, a social historian, and it's called The Dark Size of Empathy. Because there's a point at which empathy doesn't look anything like the universal ideal we had in our heads in the 60s and 70s. It starts to look more like tribalism, a way to reinforce our own point of view and keep blocking out all others. He went on to say, some terrorist, where I would say it's not an absence of empathy, but they have extreme empathy. They feel pity, they feel suffering of their own people, and so their empathy is only for people like them. So, it's not that we lack empathy in general in this time and place, but we tend to empathize only with people who we identify as being on our side. Once again, human attempts to shape hearts and minds to make a better world has its limitations. And it's equally possible to manipulate others for our own purposes. We see that happening all the time in the media. But what if our basis of empathy was not on identifying with other people, but on the idea that everyone is God's child? Christ died for the world, for God so loved the cosmos. The gift of the Holy Spirit is for all people. Jesus prayed last week that his disciples would be one 
as he is one with the Father. This is what the gift of the Holy Spirit offers. This is the central meaning of Pentecost. To fully understand the significance of Acts chapter 2, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 11. Matter of fact, it's, Acts chapter 2 is a purposeful undoing of what happens in Genesis chapter 11. Um, you know, one of the great mysteries of evolution is the development of language. Uh, it was the single most important development that lets us be at the top of the food chain. Some speculate, by the way, that's why only Homo sapiens are left of all the other human species. I once heard a Christian geologist speculate that the Cain and Abel story is about what Homo sapiens did to Neanderthals, right? Okay, the, the gentle hunter-gatherers, Abel, are killed by the agrarians, Cain. Now, I think in the Bible it's actually about the Canaanites, but you get the point. But the very thing that enables us to be lords of the earth became a chief division between us. Language separates us into different groups, different tribes, different people. It creates a roadblock, not only to understanding each other, literally, but to be able to understand each other who we are. Because language is really about how we think, right? If you really learn another language, you're not only learning the words, but you're learning the thought process. Now, the Tower of Babel, okay, is uh, a story that's written down while the Jews are in the Babylonian captivity. As a matter of fact, the city is placed in what was then Babylon, which is today, of course, Iraq. Now, there are other stories like this in, out, in other cultures. Now, there's one, a Native American story. Other cultures have this idea of humanity building a stairway, if you would, or a tower to heaven. And the story in Genesis is most likely inspired by the Babylonian ta tower that they saw every day, which was a temple to Marduk, which the Babylonians called Babali, city of God, or the gateway to God. Hebrew form Babel or Babel. Now, there's a play on words in Hebrews, right, between the city of Babel, the Babylonians, and to Babel, you know, to speak in a way that you cannot hear. Genesis 11 is the final kind of chapter of this, these primal, primeval, uh, prehistory stories. And it's another example of humans' rebellion against God. The first rebellion against God, of course, is Adam and Eve. We will be like him if you eat the fruit. Okay. What is the second sin? I think the second sin is Adam throwing Eve under the bus. Okay. So if the first sin is I want to be like God, the second sin is it's her fault. Right. Okay. Scapegoating. The third sin, the tragedy of human history, brother killing brother. Then we have the destruction of creation. And then after the ark, we have the rebuilding, the, the beginning of culture, right? But there's something inherent to human-built culture that can become a statement that we want to be God. It's just a kind of a corporate expression of what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. At least that's how the writer presents it. And so 
the origin of multiple languages, according to Genesis, is that it was God's way of humbling and dividing humanity. The Feast of Pentecost is an intentional undoing, if you would, of Babel, or, or a restoration of the original intent. Matter of fact, throughout the New Testament, you can read the New Testament as a program of undoing what went wrong with humanity from the beginning. And you can do that. There's all Christ is the new Adam. Mary is the new Eve. The church is the new Eve. Okay? Heaven, you know, is a new garden. The garden of Eden is redeveloped. It's all over the New Testament. But the beginning of the church, the first program of God's redeeming humanity is to bring us back together. Now, the Feast of Passover, or Shuvot, has many names in the Bible, probably because by the time of the first century, what had been separate feasts were all combined into one great festival. It was celebrated the 50th day after Passover. It's traditionally a joyous feast of giving thanks and celebration. It's the first, it's the harvest, the first harvest, the first fruits. And so it's to this day is celebrated. Uh, people decorate their houses, uh, you have special desserts. It's a time of great celebration. For the early followers of Jesus, they had been gathering, they had been waiting. What did Jesus tell them? Go and wait. <laughs> wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, it comes in a mighty, powerful way. See, this demonstration of the Holy Spirit is creating a new humanity in Christ. As Paul will later state in 2 Corinthians and Ephesians, the dividing wall of language is only the first of many walls to be destroyed in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Walls that separate us by class, ethnicity, gender, religion are removed. In Christ there is no male or female. In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. In Christ there is no free or poor or free or slave. The many have become one. From God's perspective, what I have in common with fellow Christians outweighs all other connections. Biological family, nationality, political affiliation, yes, even allegiance to your favorite sports team. I'm a Steeler fan. You Eagle fans can embrace me. You're supposed to smile that one, all right? Maybe, that, maybe that's the bridge too far, right? <laughs> Placing my individual right above any notion of a greater good is perhaps the most natural things for humans to do. We're also wired for group allegiance as well, and it's the best strategy to survive. Okay? It's easier to survive together than individually. Culture is both a natural outgrowth and accident of its process. You know, there's nothing inherently wrong about building a city. But even our morality is kind of an extension of this evolutionary tendency. Let me be more precise. When I say that human nature is selfish, I mean that our minds contain a variety of mental mechanisms that make us adapt to promoting our self-interest in competition with others. The social historian Jonathan Haidt says this. When I say that human nature is also groupish, I mean that our minds can sing, contain a variety of mental mechanisms that make us adapt to promoting our group's interest in competition with other groups. 
We are not saints, but we are sometimes good team players. He goes on to say, this is perhaps his most famous quote, Morality binds and blinds. It binds us into ideological teams that fight each other as though the fate of the world depended on our side winning each battle. It blinds us to the fact that each team is composed of greedy people who have something important to say. In other words, the evolutionary nature of morality is that we bind to people that are like us, and we're blind to the fact that people who disagree with us may be good people as well. However, or people that are different from us are good people as well. Martin Luther once said, to the chagrin of some of his more uh, uh, strident followers, that there are as many sinners on our side as there are on their side. Christianity actually says something fundamentally counter to what is our natural, biological, social, and evolutionary tendencies. But why the current state of our national life on both the left and right is profoundly libertarian and tribal at the same time. In other words, we shout out for our individual rights, yet we are closely aligned to people that are exactly like us. And I would add, behind the invocations to the contrary, this tribalism is profoundly unchristian. The universal message could not be more out of step with the current trends and more necessary. Let me say that again. The universal message of Pentecost could not be more out of step with our current trends and more necessary. The Holy Spirit calls us to be more than children of the earth, more than highly evolved apes. The Holy Spirit transforms us into the sons and daughters of the living God. Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in others is bigger than any other possible bond. What we share with Christians is eternal. Now that's not to minimize how important family is. There's nothing wrong with belonging to clubs and societies. It's okay to root for your favorite team. It's okay to belong to a political party. Just none of that is more important than the bond we have in Christ. That's what the gift of the Holy Spirit is about. And ever since we've gotten that gift, we kind of fight against it. <laughs> it's unnatural. Yes, that's why it's supernatural. You know, I, I have, there's so many different stories about where tragedy and crisis brings people together to around what's really important. You know, there's a famous, well, it's not maybe that famous, but there are great stories during a time of persecution where Christians who wouldn't fellowship with each other, who had excommunicated each other as they sat facing death together, came around and prayed with each other. But this last week, remembering the 75th anniversary of D-Day, I was reminded of a, a famous story that maybe not as remembered as it used to be. And that's the story of the four chaplains. They were on the USS Dorchester on February 2nd, 1943, headed towards Greenland when their ship was torpedoed. There were about 900 and so military personnel, merchant seamen and civilian workers on this ship. 
including four chaplains, a Methodist, a Catholic priest, a minister of the RCA, and a Jewish rabbi. The four men had actually met at Harvard when they were studying to be chaplains. Uh, each of them had served in their respective uh, traditions. Well, you can only imagine the sheer, sheer panic that happened after the ship was torpedoed. Uh, only 200 and some folks survived, but there was a number retelling by the survivors of the actions of the chaplains as the ship was going down. One officer said that the chaplain gave, it was freezing, the water was 30 some degrees, the air temperature was 30 some degrees. One person remembered that the rabbi handed him his gloves saying, I have an extra pair, you take these. Of course, he didn't have an extra pair. The story of how each of them, they saw the chaplains encouraging other people. Men said they heard prayers in Latin, in English, in Hebrew. And more than one of them said one of the last images they saw on the ship was the four chaplains gave up their own life jackets. There was a shortage of life jackets. And right before the ship went down, he saw the four chaplains arms linked praying. What we need to do as the people of God in 2019 is to link our arms and pray. Pray for those who disagree of us. Pray for our country. Pray for other countries. As Christians, we do not have enemies. Right? Okay. Right? Because God tells us to pray for our enemies. It's hard to keep someone an enemy when you're praying for them. Pentecost offers us an opportunity to live out the powerful message that there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism. That in Christ, all distinctions are obliterated and we truly are one. That's not something that you can do in a curriculum in grade school and high school. That can only come from the indwelling power of God, which is in each of you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed.